I'm amazed at the amount of conversations I've had with strangers about water. People that have watched our Kinetico commercials like to have fun with them and offer me their own water. We laugh for a little bit. And then eventually we end up talking about water and I explain what I've learned about my own water since switching to my Kinetico water treatment system. First off, I was blown away by how gross my city water has been. After changing out the filter one time, I saw just how much rust and crud built up. Trust me, it is disgusting. I used to drink that and you are too. Now my water is clean, soft and rust free. We can taste the difference, feel it in our showers, and see it in our clothes. Now you can see the difference for yourself because Aquarius Home Services and Kinetico offers a free water analysis. Get rid of that white scale buildup, orange rust stains, colors, strong odors, and funny tastes with a Kinetico water treatment system that provides the world's most efficient water softener and the best reverse osmosis system in the industry. You, too, can have worry-free drinking water today. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended, and I recommend them. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Welcome back to the Do North Outdoors podcast. My name is Travis Frank. I'm going to be your host today. Flying solo, not really solo, but my co-host Natalie if you follow her on social media, Brandon, as as we both do, we've seen her on some pretty incredible journeys over the years, and she's on another one, and she is in Norway, and I got a tweet that she said, pray for me, this could be huge, <laughs> and I was like, what, what are you doing now? And she's on, I guess, Brandon, she found an iceberg up there that nobody has ever tamed before. And so she's like, this could be my big worldwide break. I'm going to sail off on this glacier. I mean, good for her. Yeah. I mean, if, if she's going to explore the Nord, why not? Yeah. Yeah. So um, she's in. Yeah, that's I, I don't know when we'll, we'll see her again. If we'll see her again. You know, I think she loses cell service at a certain point. And she's just going to drift off on that iceberg. Mm-hmm. Just drift yeah. away. So I said. Good luck. God be with you. You've got this. Uh, update us when you can, and we'll keep things rolling here while you're out prancing around on glaciers. And so we don't know if she'll ever come back. I mean, why would you? She's in the land of sunlight. Well, it's I like- think you have to eat. You know, <laughs> right, that's fair, um, that's I don't fair. know what kind of food she's going to have out there. I assume they have fish. I assume, but can she catch them? <laughs> I've seen her fish before. You know, I don't, I don't know that she's going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, at this point, she. while we are talking right now, it's not certain that she's doing well. Let's all put out thoughts and prayers for Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Dillon, out on a glacier in Norway. Pray for her. Yes. But the show must go on, Brandon. It must. And it so must. that's why we showed up to work today, and we, were gonna, we are going to keep it rolling. And I have my friend Scott McIntoon, who works for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, uh, Scott, what is your title now? You've worked like, man, you're just flying through the ranks. I am the area supervisor at the Hutchinson DNR Fisheries Office. Okay. And prior to that, what was your title? Uh, I've had a few different roles. I was a regional habitat specialist. I was an assistant supervisor and I was a fisheries specialist. So I spent some time at the Waterville, Minnesota station where we also have a fish hatchery. And then I actually worked that habitat regional job um, also out of Waterville for a couple of years. 
Okay, and I, as much as I want to talk about our epic journey into a tiny lake in northern Minnesota to watch you catch a muskie on the fly, we are going to talk about something not quite as fun as that. And our topic today is winter kill. Winter kill is happening as we speak. I don't need to tell anybody listening that this winter has been brutal. And when we have a winter like this, we experience a phenomenon called winter kill. Scott, what is winter kill? So winter kill occurs when we have just a drop in oxygen levels. Uh, I think a lot of folks will talk about, oh, there's a freeze out. I get a lot of old timers that talk to me and say, you know, oh, Lake X is freezing out. Well, and it, that sort of conveys the idea that the water is freezing all the way down to the bottom. And, you know, that's what's going to cause a, a kill. In all reality, it's, it's hypoxia, a, fan, a fancy term of you're, you're dropping too low. You don't have enough oxygen. And uh, we, we do see that. We do see some of these lakes that go hypoxic, even anoxic, where there's a complete lack of oxygen. Um, so we'll get into the meat and potatoes of it here a little bit, but, uh, yeah, in, in a, in a word, it's just low oxygen that can, can kill aquatic life. It happens. I mean, let's, let's look back at the last several months. How many months have we had snow covering the ice, which is a big deal. You can, yeah, life can flourish underneath ice. It's that snow cover that prevents the light from penetrating down there. When the plants start to die, decay oxygen gets burnt up that way and i mean can you let's get into the details right off the bat like yeah. what really causes the death so this is how i like to have folks visualize this um when we we're looking at a lake and minnesota's blessed with all these wonderful lakes and they they run the gamut from the southwestern corner of the state where it's shallow prairie lakes all the way to northeastern minnesota where it'll be more canadian shield oligotrophic really deep and rocky lakes we think about all these lakes, start thinking about them in three dimensions, thinking about them in terms of volume, because our lakes and the oxygen that's in those lakes are like a bank account. We have debits and credits that are occurring over the course of the winter. So we're going to have a little bit of photosynthesis. It's not a lot, but we're going to have some photosynthesis that's occurring throughout the year. It could be phytoplankton, uh, you know, the, the, the plant-like, the plant algae that's swimming around photosynthesizing it can be plants native plants that are dormant a real big player uh in the in the shallow lakes regions of minnesota is curly leaf pondweed mm -hmm. it's it's a it's an exotic plant but it's been in our state for over 100 years you could almost call it naturalized it's been here so long it is has a unique life history where it actually starts growing under the ice in the winter time and that gives it a huge leg up over native plants that's why here. it excels early in the spring exactly you see it up and up and growing in a hurry and you know building up to canopy by early summer you know it's usually senescing and dying by about the fourth of july that's a competitive advantage for this plant while that plant is in our lakes photosynthesizing under the ice um other deb you know debits and credits on the credit side when we have melt, when we have thaw cycles that occur and we have meltwater that's introduced, if we don't have a big frost line and it's wet enough in the fall that our tile lines in agricultural Minnesota are running, fresh water can be introduced. And then, of course, there's the idea of aeration or moving water. It can be a natural phenomenon if there's a, a waterfall or something that's entering a lake or enough, enough movement that's occurring. We've got water roughness that things aren't freezing. 
anywhere that you have, <clears throat> excuse me, anywhere that you have an open water interface, water and air meeting, that's where you're going to have oxygen coming in. Now on the debit, so that's that's that is uh, photosynthesis, and that's introducing oxygen on the on the debit side of things, taking away our oxygen is the act of respiration. And so any organism that's respiring, it's using up oxygen, releasing carbon dioxide, and we have to factor in uh, decomposition. Decomposition, organic materials breaking down on the bottom of the lake, that process is also gonna be using up oxygen. So the, I, going all, coming all the way back, I was saying, we're gonna use this banking analogy. So the bigger the lake that we have, the more water is available, even at just the molecular level, right, to, to hold oxygen throughout the year. And what we see is if we think of this in a graph, we've got this big, you know, we're at the top entering the winter. We've got uh, a super saturation, lots of, lots of dissolved oxygen. Which then, is, what does it start at? Do you know the number? Uh, I've, I've seen it anywhere from 12 to, to 18 parts per million, okay. you know, really, really high oxygen values. And then over the course of the winter, it starts to slip down. We get oxygen sag, right? We're slowly losing it. Mm -hmm. And then it, where it really tends to bottom out is late in the year. Um, if we don't have any respite, if we don't get a break, we don't get a thaw cycle, um, it, it, it will it will kind of peter out eventually and that's where it really hits fish hard so and that's where we are today yes yes and so you know when we talk about severity of winter you know my wildlife colleagues can can really tell you a lot about winter severity they have a whole index mm -hmm. where they're looking at the state of minnesota graphing out all the counties they're looking at how many days did we have that were below you know what is it 32 degrees or zero degrees you could you could chart both of them and snow depth so for certain species like white-tailed deer, that's significant because there's not going to be a lot of movement. It's going to take a lot of calories to move through that snow. You're vulnerable to predators. Winter severity index is a real big thing with white-tailed deer modeling. Now I'm getting out of my lane as a fish bio here, but I'll, I'll say that much. It's okay. <laughs> I'd say you're still in your lane. <laughs> so on the fish side of the coin, when we th and, and for lakes and, and ponds and whatnot, you know, we're talking about severity of winter in a couple of facets. One, the cold temperatures, right? And I think for, for my lifetime, 2014 takes the cake. 2014 was the, the year that most of us were introduced to the meteorological term of polar vortex. I mean, there were times I was coming into the office and I, every day we'd fire up the computers and we'd, we'd look at our machines and we would pull up the weather forecast, look out 10, 14 days, and it just wasn't breaking. We were not getting above freezing. We were not getting, you know, in the, late in the spring, we weren't getting above freezing. In the middle of winter, we had like a two-week stretch. We were below zero. It was brutally cold. And what happens when it, in that extreme cold is we build more and more ice. And again, ice can be as much of a blocker of sunlight coming down as snow. So really cold, consistently cold winters are really hard. The other side of it is the snowfall component. Now, where this winter is really standing out is looking at Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. We're presently at like the eighth snowiest winter on record. The key was a lot of that snowfall came early. We had the lights shut out on these lakes very early, right around the holidays. Um, you know, big snowfalls that came in before the first, second, third of January, and right in that that holiday time of year, end of twenty uh, twenty two. And that snow, you know, shutting out the lights early was a, was a big deal because it set the table. As long as that stuff didn't melt, and we had that snow cover on those lakes, you know, we were just not going to get that photosynthesis. We were not. 
uh, we were just we were shutting out the lights and, and we were gonna we were gonna see that oxygen sag. Now you know coming back to talk about that bank banking balance. If you have sufficient depth, you have all the water in the world to hold oxygen, and you're pretty well buffered against it. But when you're talking about shallow lakes, and if we're looking at a map of the state of Minnesota, it's it's the Red River Valley, it's it's you know it's southern Minnesota, and of course there's shallow lakes spread throughout the entire state. I don't yep. want to give the impression that they're not in any one location, but they're definitely concentrated in southern and western Minnesota uh, by numbers. And those are the lakes that, that experience winter kill. So right now I've heard from friends fishing in the areas you're talking. Your expertise falls in Minnesota. Obviously, we know that this is taking place in Wisconsin. We know this is taking place in North Dakota, South Dakota. A lot of those perch, jumbo perch factories, those shallow saloons out in the Dakotas right now. I've heard from friends fishing out there that are seeing it as well. So this conversation, we'll keep it Minnesota because that's where your expertise lies and you can only speak for the state of Minnesota, but we know that this is likely playing out in, in other states as well. Um, so do you have, you know, from your office, what amount of attention right now are you guys focusing on winter kill? I know you're, I mean, you mentioned how you fired up the computers back then. I assume you do the same thing now and you're probably hearing from residents in the state saying, Hey, help, help, help. What's happening to our lake right now? So I'll just say, I'll say a few things. So you're, you're hundred percent right. It's, it's more than just Minnesota. I mean, hearing from friends in Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, definitely seeing even Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some shallow lakes in the Sandhills region, hearing about uh, potential for kill down there. I'm not sure if they've had as much snow, but well, they, I know they did get some snow around the holidays too, where they just got blasted. So it absolutely can happen that way. But I remember seeing a graphic from the National Weather Service for Bismarck mm-hmm. where they were eclipsing 90 inches of snow. Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport was over 80 inches of snow. And our flood flood uh, frequency and, and flood monitoring services are already paying attention to that. Like We know that you know, no matter how fast or slow the melt occurs this spring, we're anticipating a lot of flooding, Red River, Minnesota River, probably Mississippi as well. And that's an indicator, yeah, you had a heck of a snowpack. And then also by extension, you know, you probably had are having impacts to these shallow lakes. So I will say, and I want to make this distinction too, like, yeah, we had a lot of snow, but also keep in mind, you know, I talked about temperature as a component of, of, of severity of winter kill. Remember, we had one of the warmest Januaries on record. Well, yeah. warm air is very good at holding water and then thus precipitation whether it comes in the form of rain or snow so that probably played hand in hand we got a lot of snow um, but it ended up being really warm and you know some of those thaws they kind of raise a little bit of doubt of are you going to have the kill or not because that again you can recharge systems put more oxygen in there Mm -hmm. but I, you know, the phone was ringing off the hook in 2014. We knew we had lakes that were crashing as early as January. And let me back up and try to articulate that a little bit better. When I say crashing, we are monitoring dissolved oxygen. We are going out with a probe. Now, 30 years ago, and I can remember being in high school and going out on a job shadow. You weren't in high school 30 years ago. You're not (laughs) that old. Come on. No, no, it it wasn't. (laughs) It's getting close. But uh, no, it, it, uh, you know, going back to that time, it was a titration exercise. It was actually using chemistry to be able to look at oxygen values and putting a dye in and matching it up to what your oxygen concentration was. 
there are private, you know, lake associations that still have those titration kits that do that. Uh, most of us have moved on to electronic po- probes. They're, you know, $1,000 units that are very precise, very accurate. You have to kind of take good care of them, but they will give you very accurate uh, readouts. Uh, the issue is we have found that we have very little per- predictive power with dissolved oxygen monitoring. And this is a fascinating thing. Like, you, you know, there is the theoretical world of, of how science works, and there's the, re- the real world. I have a document on my computer from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization that was a compilation of all of the literature on specific fish species and their dissolved oxygen tolerances. So I could look up walleye, I could look mm-hmm. up northern pike, yellow perch. Which, by the way, walleye can withstand a lot more than, let's say, a bluegill. Right? Uh, they're, they're both pretty intolerant. I would put those in a Together? list. Together? Yeah. I thought it went, okay, so the most susceptible to winter kill would be, I thought bluegills, sunfish rank near the top, right? I would put, amongst our game fish species that are popular with anglers, I would put, I would put bass species. Largemouth and smallmouth bass, bluegills, uh, and and walleye, and there's probably a little bit of differences uh, in there, but I would rank those as some of the most intolerant. And it starts around five parts per million, right? Yeah, you talk have, about the the lake starting at like twelve. Well, eight, right. Eight. I'd have to go and look, you know. But it, I mean, that's where I was getting to with this is like I've I've largely thrown those values out the window. Really? And I I'll 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 touch on that, uh, you know, here in. In a second, there was something else that, oh, I was going to ask you. All right, you should be able to knock this one. This should be your... I do the, I do the a, questions this, here, no, no. okay, sir. I do the questions. The pit, a pitch right down the middle. <laughs> what is the most tolerant of low oxygen of our fish species in Minnesota? Bullhead. Bingo. Black bullhead. Yeah. I remember writing a story about black bullhead and calling them the cockroach of the fish world. <laughs> and the editor didn't like that. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. That's a term of endearment. That is how how much of a survivalist the black bullhead is so they are able to survive in some very low conditions we know you know whether it's a, a piscicide poison reclamation of a lake or it's extremely low dissolved oxygen we know we're never going to get every last black bullhead they are that tough of a critter so, like coyotes too yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so dissolved oxygen monitoring we have binders and binders of records you know going back uh you know looking at dissolved oxygen monitoring to when we started using probes to when we had values and titration and we have seen these lakes get low and not experience kills it's not an absolute if if every time it touched a certain dissolved oxygen value we were going to have a kill my life would be so much easier i would say oh well i know what the outcome is going to be we absolutely do not have that. We have lakes that have almost triple zeroed out. I mean, 0.01 parts per million, and yeah. they have survived. Um, I, I almost think of this as it's, it's an amount of exposure, right? Like there's the difference between an acute and chronic exposure to things. You know, if you're exposed to something just in one spell swoop and then it's over, Probably not a big deal, but if you're always exposed to it, it it's going to build up over time. That's it, it's you know that's a loosey goosey explanation, but that's largely how I think some of this may be functioning. Because if we have lakes that are running low for two months, yeah, I am I have a stronger suspicion there'll be a winter kill there. However, if they just dip down and then we have a thaw cycle and they come right back up, 
you know, then they may make it through. And we see these systems where the fish are stressed, they're high risers, they're moving up in the water column where there tends to be more oxygen. We see when they get stressed, but they don't kill. These, these fish are, you got to hand it to them. They are a very, uh, you know, a tough critter that can survive quite a bit. So our dissolved oxygen monitoring, it, we continue to do it. We go out once a month early in the season, and then we start to pick it up to every couple of weeks later in the year. Now, obviously, this year has been a longer winter. It's stretching on a little bit here. Uh, first day of spring has just come and gone, but, you know, it, it looks and feels like winter outside. Mm-hmm. We'll continue to do it every couple of weeks until it's not safe, just to see, you know, how long were these fish exposed to low dissolved oxygen. So our dissolved oxygen we we try to put it out on our web page we share it with anyone that calls our office we do get a lot of questions lake by lake lake by lake yep where we, do they find that um so if you go mndnr.gov and then our hutchinson fisheries page we do put it up on there um, we try to get our web team to update it as quickly as we can so each fishery department does the same thing then not every station does it that way i mean it's just, just a ma- the cream of the crop uh, yeah <laughs> um you know, certainly you can call your local office if there's a lake in question you're curious about. Most of the stations that have a lot of shallow lakes and do this, particularly in the southern part of the state where I work, they will put them up at the end of the year so people can see, you know, exactly what they saw. I look at it, it's 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 almost more art than science. I look at it and kind of go, okay, well, this one we had low for a long period of here, so this is probably a higher, more likely candidate. The end-all, be-all for did you have a winter kill is not our dissolved oxygen monitoring. It's waiting for the ice to come off the lake and, and what see what you have. see what you have for dead fish. Okay, and and I know that that can be frustrating. But if we had to go to every lake that we had low dissolved oxygen monitoring, we'd probably be visiting half of our lake. Well, that's okay. So we're gonna get into why why do some lakes have aerators? Why not all of them? why winter kill isn't the worst thing in the world it can be a blessing mm-hmm. um and i think before we get to those though i want to ask you mentioned it we're, we could be sampling half of our lakes right do you have a gut feeling right now as to how many lakes in minnesota are going to winter kill this winter across the la- across the state i couldn't say but within my area We've got a bunch of rearing ponds, which when we go into the pros and cons of winter kill, we'll touch yeah. on that. But we're 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 pretty excited that we think we're finally going to have a good kill. We've <laughs> see we've, what I mean. We've, we've, you're we've, excited. We've jealously observed other stations uh, that had high snowpack, like Detroit Lakes, Fergus Falls, uh, Ortonville. They've had they've had some winter kill last year. Uh, we didn't experience any of that, so we're kind of going. All right, it's finally our time. We have not had a serious kill in the Hutchinson management area since 2014. We've had partial kills here and there. That that's an important distinction that folks need to understand too. Winter kill is not black and white. It absolutely is on a spectrum. Because think about the variable sensitivity to low oxygen that these different fish species have. Not only amongst species, but within species. You know, within a species, there could be more vulnerability for larger bodied, more mature fish, and smaller fish may be less responsive based on body size and metabolic requirements but also where they're where they're gonna where they're gonna spend their time what ha- what their habitat use is i have a lake right now clear lake south of new Ulm, that has very high abundance of common carp and you always think common carp are this well they're this they're an invasive exotic fish that they're going to be particularly hardy they actually are more vulnerable to low oxygen and especially when they get in very high abundance 
you know, then they have, they're tending to school together and hang out in certain parts of the lake. They have a certain higher amount of vulnerability. So this clear lake in New Ulm, uh, we've already gotten reports from some of the folks with the uh, New Ulm area sport fishermen and, and other folks that fish the lake that have put underwater cameras down and seen dead carp in the shallows. So we actually look at that as something of a good thing. You know, they have taken those same underwater cameras and gone out to deeper water and they've seen our game fish species, northern pike, yellow perch, black crappie. They're out there. They're not biting. They're lethargic. They're just trying to survive. And we're rooting for them. You know, if it, you know, we, we would like to see them uh, survive and make it through because if we take a kill on the carp, there's more of a niche opening there. You would for think, though, species. that the carp would be like the bullheads almost, the hardy ones. You would think, but I've, I've seen it on, in a few instances where they're some of the first fish to go. Okay, so then you just said, we're rooting for you. The, the angler that loves that lake amongst, that's his top lake or her top lake, mm-hmm. they're going to say, get out here, drill a hole, put an aerator in and save those fish. Why sure. don't you? So that's a great question. That particular lake used to have aeration on it. We have a lot of lakes in the state that have or had a history of aeration. And there's been a lot of failures. One of the things that we've talked about internally is we need to have a publication that documents what has happened so that there's better understanding amongst ourselves and the public. There is a lot of places with a failed history of aeration. There's at least three of them in my management area. Right now, I think we have seven aeration permits out there. Uh, and there used to be 10. And other now another station... Uh, Explain a failure then so that somebody listening can... Because yeah, I think yeah. a lot of times people point the finger at the DNR and say, right. DNR doesn't care about you and what you want. They're just doing, you know, like, right. you know, they'll make up whatever narrative works best for them and blame. You take a lot of heat. So it's it's been attempted. I will say this. Uh, I can remember former fisheries chief saying that stocking is not a panacea. Now, there's a $5 word for you, a vocabulary word, panacea. Uh, a panacea is something that just fixes everything immediately, right? And the same is true of aerators. Aerators are not a panacea. We don't just stick them in and everything is taken care of. There is this dichotomy of, is the lake deep enough to survive? What we said earlier with that bank analogy, do we have enough depth to have enough water to survive through the winter? And as our, as our maximum and average depth gets shallower and shallower, it starts to call into question, can this lake survive throughout the winter? Where is that depth value? Um, I would say the upper threshold is probably in that 15, 16, 17 foot maximum depth range. And then the minimum could be down to five or six, but it's, there's a huge amount of spread in there, right? There's almost 10, 10 feet in there. Other, my colleagues may disagree. They may have a different bounds, the upper and lower limit for what they would argue of where where that's where and that's just me describing where we have aeration and i would think it's case by case basis you might have a lake that's really fertile where there's a lot of vegetation has a lot more oxygen that way i I don't know i mean different parts of the state it's made up of different bottom composition right right i mean you see right there can be more organics in the shallow lakes that are breaking down and could be using up oxygen the the plant thing there i painted the picture earlier about you know credits that we get from photosynthesis and we do get some but by and large You know, our natives are for the most part down and it's just a small trace amount of photosynthesis. So we're not counting on that for a lot of oxygen production. There's also just this misnomer, and that's at the root of your question. There's this misnomer of how aeration truly works. Everybody thinks, well, we just, you know, there's different styles. There's surface-driven units that are actually a pump pushing water down, creating surface agitation, stirring up the water. 
um, aeration industries here in Minnesota produces Aero 2s. They're used for municipal wastewater treatment and for lake aeration. They're right in Chaska. Um, that's a surface drive unit. We also have diffuser styles. So you've got a pump. It's basically a scaled up version of what you'd have on your home aquarium, right? There's an air stone. It's down at the bottom. Of course, there's, these air stones are huge. And they're putting out little bubbles that are coming up and they're agitating and opening up the surface. At the end of the day, what you want to see with aeration units is a huge area of open water because that's where you have exchange, gas exchange, oxygen going into the water where water and air meet, that air-water interface is where that exchange is happening. So the bigger area of water you open up, the more refuge you're able to offer. And let me make that distinction. It's a refuge. We actually have temperature and uh, oxygen loggers that are out on lakes that we're testing this. So if you're 50 foot off the middle of the aerator, if you're a quarter mile off the aerator, if you're too, you know, very, you know, think about it as a bullseye, how far off that aeration unit are you? And what does that do to dissolve oxygen? What we have found is we are creating a small refuge area. And then you don't have to travel too far away before it drops it goes down. Up to nothing. Do the fish know? I need to go to that. Do they do they still go into where they want to feed and hunt and live and not realize that this option is available to them down there? Some yes and some no. Like I think, you know, the, they're a pretty simple-brained organism that, you know, stimulus response and don't they don't have an original thought, but at the same time so some of them do succumb. Like we see these partial winter kills where we can I could I could point out lakes um I'll, I'll point out to Tamarack Lake, uh, northwestern Minnesota, on a refuge. If you were to pull up a depth map of that lake, it's this huge flat of like five or six foot that drops down to a hole where it's deeper. Or, you know, Whale Tail Lake in Carver County sort of operates that way, where it's really flat and shallow in one section of the lake, and then it drops down into some depth. That, those style lakes do experience these partial winter kills because the fish end up getting spread out. And if they're in the shallow water habitats, when it's in low oxygen, they can succumb to it. They can die. And that ends up fueling pretty good fishing in places because you always are knocking out a certain amount of your fish. You're reducing the competition and you're seeing nice growth. Um, so you can, that's, you know, I'm, I'm jumping ahead on you a little bit to talk about how aeration or how a uh, winter kill can be beneficial. Great reset. I like to call it for some people. Right. Yeah. But to, yeah. So fish can, sometimes they're smart enough. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's, I hate to put it that way because it sort of anthropomor <laughs> anthropomorphizes them, but you know, to, to head over to those aeration areas, we certainly see it when the fish are stressed, right? Like we see fish up in those holes gulping, but it tends to be schooling species that are used to doing that. Um, but if it, I did back in 2014, I did a story on Pelican Lake. That one was a big controversial one yeah. out by Buffalo, right? That became just, it was a waterfall mecca but then it became this fishing mecca panfish and northern pike and bass and that that big and, massive slew were like drawing people by the, wasn't quite the red lake crappie boom but right. it was a big deal here and i remember when we went out there they opened it up to liberalize fishing you guys did yep. <clears throat> and there were people with nets dip nets and i actually have the photo and i think i'll include the photo with this when um we when we post this episode because I want people to see what it looks like. There's literally scooping crappies, and, and I think it was a lot of crappies at the time, with, with summer nets in these yeah. big holes. And they were 
thousands of fish laying on the ice on the surface. For sure, yeah. No, in Pelican, you're right. It was very controversial. It was designated as a wildlife lake, and I don't know the exact year that it was, but it, it a lot of people kind of overlooked that. Yeah, it, there was you know there was discussion to move this towards wildlife designation and then be able to actively manage water levels. And I get it. You know, they saw nice fish, but it was just a matter of time. I mean, if they had left it alone, eventually you'd see our bullheads, other species would take over and elbow out those game fish. So they're it just wouldn't being... be the the fishery that it became. Right. And it still it still has nice fishing opportunities out there. Just by hitting that reset button, you know, you can kinda you can kinda get back and, and build them back up again. So I think uh maybe this is a rosy recollection but i think people are able to have their waterfall opportunities and their fishing opportunities <laughs> but i know they weren't happy that you were losing some of those fish in the process it, I've, i know you've learned so much in this role that you have but you are a very active hunter and angler in this state as well and so when you see a lake dying off in your mind you're thinking crap that's a lake i love to fish or are you thinking all right I like what I see here. Let's let's hit the reset button. It's it's some of both because here's the thing: you have to understand circle of control, and this is what I I, I spend a lot of time talking with constituents about: is there is so much of this that is outside of our control. I can't spill I can't spill tears about something that I can't yeah. have any control over. Do I like to see those fish perish? No, I don't. But again, you know, there's this, the silver lining is you can build something back up in a short amount of time. Like, Let's talk about the silver lining. What is the great reset button when we get a, a die off? How does it work? And why is it a blessing to a lot of these lakes? It's just, it's the idea of vacancy, like mother nature abhors operating in a vacuum, right? They want to fill up these niches. So if we have a lake and we have knocked out all of the fish and we're starting over, or we have a few survivors because I just got done saying earlier that, you know, there's this spectrum and very, very rarely do we have these complete kills that take every single fish out of there. There's usually some survivors and whether it's the survivors that are there or it's the fish that get stocked in afterwards, it is the lowest competition they will see in their life. The habitat gets reset. There aren't fish that are feeding in the bottom of the lake, benthivorous fish like uh, common carp or black bullhead or fathead minnow, white sucker. They're out of the picture. Our plants get rooted. Our zooplankton takes off. We can sh- I could show you pictures of after a winter kill and having a fish vacancy, this amazing response. Tremendous wa- ecosystem. Oh, tremendous water yeah. quality. You see these schools of clodosterns, big Daphnia. If you're a waterfall hunter, you know, you, you see these or you see scuds, right? The big uh, uh, or, or gamorous shrimp. You, you, you see these huge macroinvertebrates and zooplankton that form clouds in the water that are just zipping around and and you just know that ducks and fish and everything has this big buffet in front of them and we document the most amazing fish growth i mean just almost off the charts like some some of the growth has been so good that we need to submit it you know to a to a publication to document that this is unprecedented growth you know Northern pike that we saw maturing, it's reaching sexual maturity, you know, in there after one year, and it, when it's supposed to take mm-hmm. them a couple of years to get to that point, I mean, they they respond so beautifully to these situations, and you see it with waterfall, you which know. which I think is why so many people grab grasp these lakes and say save them, save them because it's so good. But the reason it's so yep. good is because this happens there. 
Yes. And that the, the, the education of ecology is so critically important. I will give our Shadow Lakes Wildlife Program some credit. They've been around 20, 25 uh, years. They've probably been around longer than that, but I just think about the, the gains they have made in educating the public. I have folks, I'll give, you, I'll give you a specific example, High Island Lake, Sibley County. We have drawn that lake down. We have gotten the public's consent to draw it down to manage it for fish and wildlife resources. Put in a new dam. And they are now, at, at put in a new dam. They are now, they were at our meetings advocating that we need to do this because we have seen the response. We know what a lake that's, in a shallow lake in disrepair looks like and how important winter kill is to the equation. So the analogy that I've drawn, I've used it before, and it fits here, is that fire is so important to the prairie as a regenerative uh, perturbation. Winter kill is the same thing for shallow lakes. Drought cycles that we used to see happen in the Midwest and Great Plains states used to drive or increase the likelihood of, of winter kill. So those droughts, and by extension winter kill, were that regenerative feature that was so important that we would revisit shallow lakes are so dynamic they change so much they need those reset buttons they're they're so functionally different than deep lakes in so many ways that this is this is the important mechanism that really draws them becoming regenerated yeah. and starting over and it you know people say i don't want to wait a couple of years i want it now i want it now well sorry that's not how the wild world works it no, does and, take some time but like you said the whole ecosystem resets, the yeah. food chain, everything, the habitat gets a reset, and the growth is extraordinary. In some ways, Scott, I wish we could winter kill some other lakes that we've messed up, that anglers have messed up, because yeah. the balance is not what it should be for those fish to reach the potential of what we really want. Oh, absolutely. And we can, we can wait. Um, you know, talking about the waiting game and people don't want to wait that long. My, my counter is always most of these systems are so highly productive just by their nature of being shallow and typically where they're located in the state. Again, usually Western Minnesota, Red River Valley or Southern Minnesota. We do have fantastic growth. So we're not waiting long. We, yeah, you lost these fish, but we can build it right back up in two years time. I mean, everyone's out there thinking this is going to take five or 10 years to come around. I've told very astute anglers, when you see a winter kill, Go write it down in a notebook yes. and tell yourself to come back. Yes. That 2014 kill reset so many of our lakes. And we, we had people going into our fish, our walleye rearing ponds. I was one of them. I'll clear It's uh, Silver Lake over by Arlington. I, I remember like rubbing my hands together <laughs> like, all right, yeah. baby. You know, these fish are two. Actually, they've had three growing seasons, 14, 15, and 16. I was going to fish them in the 16, 17 winter. And we had just gotten safe ice. I'm like, I'm on my way home from work. I'm swinging in. I got there. I'm the last vehicle in the parking lot. That was the last spot left. They already knew. They so took people notes. Knew. People knew. And, and they were getting out there probably in the fall or they knew from previous years that they're finally going to be in that sweet spot. And we had so many lakes that just went bonkers after 2014 that well, that's why I say we're looking for these lakes that we have that opportunity. And you're 100% right. Like this fuels the ship. Now it's important that I think that this needs to be mentioned. I haven't said it yet, is that we as a whole, do not see winter kill like we used to of 70s, 80s, and 90s. Why is that? Well, I hit on some of those debits and credits. We talked about maybe it's agricultural tiling and water coming in, curly leaf pondweed photosynthesizing. But now you have to come all the way around. You do have to talk about climate. We can demonstrate with data that we have later ice up, earlier ice off on the whole. 
Obviously, this year's a different year. It's colder. Hey, years have variability, right? That's part of the, 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 the variability that you're going to see in the data. But the trend line is absolutely consistent. It's later ice on, earlier ice off, less total days of ice cover, and weakening winters. Less winter kill that has happened, and less reset buttons. So as an agency, how do you adapt to climate change? Well, we have to, and, and how do you adapt to these weakening winters? What tools do we have in the toolbox? The one that I point to is, do we have lakes that we have the ability to draw down? And I will unabashedly say, I am a supporter of doing that where we can. Where do we have a small enough watershed to water body ratio? Where do we have public support? Where do we have infrastructure in the case of, of water control structures? Where do we have the capacity to do this? If we can do it in the places that are at the highest priority top of the list that actually fit all those criteria, we should be doing it because otherwise we're doing a disservice to the public. And we, we are working that out. We're trying to identify those locations. I've had a few in my work area. I'm always you know, trying to find more, but it's really, it's a huge public education campaign. And it's all about teaching about shallow lake ecology and the importance of winter kill. So <clears throat> lake winter kills, what's the next step? Do you wait to find out if anything survived or do you go in and you stock a, a number of bluegills cropping northern bass or like what's the DNR's response then? Yeah, good question. So we were kind of going down that road earlier. We were saying, well, the only way we're going to definitively know is when the ice goes out, if we have kill or not. I have an idea from, I have a generalized idea from looking at my dissolved oxygen readings of places I need to poke around and look at. But typically it's, okay, what uh, is the public calling in? You know, are there, there's places we have our suspicions that we'll drive out and take a look around and see if we have some dead fish. If there's places that our dissolved oxygen was very low for a long period of time, it may behoove us to get out there and set some nets when the ice goes out. Do we have fish in the nets or not? Just a basic presence absence. Not, I'm not looking for size structure. I'm not looking for huge sample size. Survive. Exactly. <laughs> this is a very basic netting to get in and out and know, did we have some amount of winter kill or not? And how can we uh, kind of articulate that? So we'll try to go into those places. So to answer your question, we set up our lake management plans on the fishery side that uh, we know lakes that have a history of winter kill from you know, 50, 60, 70 years of, of observing and monitoring these lakes. So we kind of have an idea of where we've had a history. Some it's a one in 20, 30 year chance. Others it's every three, four, four five years. And the takeaway is we will look at that lake management plan and we will say, okay, we we're going to restock this many fish that we think is going to take to repopulate the lake. Give an you know, example. Um, let's, walleyes are pretty simple. We can get tons of walleye fry and put them in rearing ponds and recreational fishing lakes. Boom and bust fisheries. Just quickly to define a boom and bust fishery, it's a lake that we're actually managing under the pretense of winter kill. The boom comes after the winter kill. We put the walleye fry in and they go bonkers. We catch lots and lots of fish. Um, their survival is really good. Growth is really good. And People have buku fishing, but eventually that comes to an end. We don't get as good a survivorship. Other background species kind of turn up their abundance, maybe more benthivorous fish like those bullheads or carp, and eventually things kind of peter out. Then we hope for another winter kill, and then we get back on the boom side of things. So that's, that's boom and bust fishing on these shallow lakes. Um, but we're, we're looking in, you know, it could be walleye fry. It could be we're going to put a pair of pre-spawn bluegills for every say 10 to 20 acres of lake mm -hmm. and that pre-spawn pair can get out before the spawn comes up they can start a nest in this new lake and with a very little competition we're going to see really good survivorship from that nest of bluegills so it doesn't take a lot i bet but like how do you <clears throat> okay guys 
stay together. You know, like when you put them in the water, what you'd, are your chances? You'd you'd be surprised. We that that call, that that urge to spawn and to find a mate is pretty incredible. So they fascinating. Do, yeah, they do find each other. Those especially those uh, nest building species that give a lot of parental care. You don't have to put a lot of them in there. I talk to lake associations all the time. Bluegills, crappies. If if you don't see a lot of them, it's because there isn't a great niche for them. But if they have an opening, they will take it and fill it. So where do you get those ones? Do you go catch them? We trap and transfer. Yeah. So we we have our lakes disease tested, and then we have the flexibility to go out. And it, the public is pretty understanding. Like if I'm going into Lake X and there's a whole bunch of homes, they're like, "Why are you going and taking our fish out?" Well. Lake Y down the road had a winter kill. We're trying to do, you know, we're taking a to- grand total of, you know, a hundred fish or 200 fish or whatever it might be in a lake that if we did a population estimate probably has 50,000, you know, or mm-hmm. hundred thousand, you know, we could do the numbers. It's, so each explain for people that might not grasp this, each bluegill can have how many eggs inside? Oh, 50,000, hundred. I mean, that's the crazy part. Yes. Yeah. So if you have a hundred nests, you can have a million Yes, fish show up. They like can that. produce a year class like nothing. So it doesn't take a lot, and that's why we don't. You know, I'm not going to go crazy putting tons of adults in and like try to pop up a fishery just on the adults. It doesn't make any sense. Let's focus on getting the reproductive effort out there. Yep. Yeah, and you can't do that with walleye necessarily because they might not have the. Um, they might go through the process of it, but they're not successful, which right. is unfortunate. I wish walleyes would just take wherever you put them and they could successfully reproduce on their yeah, own. Yeah, if they were like their cousins, the Xanders, who are, who are nest protectors. Oh, yeah. you just opened up a whole new can. <laughs> so, I was I forgot all about this, Scott. I mentioned this, like, I don't know, Brandon, I was like a month or two ago or yep. three months ago, yep. but... Super Lake. A Super Lake. <laughs> Let's create one Super Lake in the state. You and I have talked about this briefly, Scott, but is there ever a chance we can just have one fun little, like, well, we know this isn't connected to anything, <laughs> Nobody, it, the fish aren't going to get outside of this one lake. There's no stream for them to, you know, like, they're not like the Asian carp, you know. Could we ever have, I know North Dakota I, tried it. I don't, I don't see the day coming only because the, the. We all the know con- that your, your job is decided <laughs> well, by elected officials. So well, the, what if I get the right people in office? Well, it's the, it's the consequences. I don't even think it's the elected officials. It's the idea of what is going to happen if these fish are to escape. And that's why I'm saying we have a completely landlocked. <laughs> well, so they're in. So up, they're right on. There is, We've got 11,000 some lakes. Let's just have one wild west. They are in Spirit Lake, North Dakota, where I've, yes. I've waterfall hunted around there, but I haven't. I haven't brought the fishing rod. Have you wanted to though? The Let's next, be honest. The next have you time, wanted to, Scott? It's a. It's a. It's a needle in a haystack. But I know people that have caught them before out there. So. Maybe someday. Good job dodging my. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, I mean, because I'm telling you right now, if I have a private fish stocking permit that comes in, we're looking at, is it a fish that's native mm-hmm. to the watershed? And what are the chances of escape, escapement? What are the connecting waters that are nearby? So we're, we're trying to manage in a capacity that we're not bringing a huge headache upon ourselves. And there are other states, absolutely, that have much looser rules about fish coming in or out. Um, you know, once you let the genie out of the bottle, you can't get it back in. We look at, uh, silver carp being brought into the state of Arkansas for wastewater control. We're dealing with massive yeah, impacts from that fish. Right. Um, you know, we could list a lot of other species, round, round goby, uh, even native fish in the, in, in the United States that have moved outside of their range, like lake trout and Yellowstone. Um, you know, fish that move out of their native range can have a lot of unintended consequences. We really don't know what the Xander 
would do. And I know if you ask, you know, folks in North Dakota, it was a one-time deal and I don't think they would do it again just yeah. for that reason. But mm-hmm. Well, the another, another exotic species topic that you and I have, I think we've texted on this a couple of times, but, um, the, the boom in the Dakotas is largely attributed the size, I should say the size of the fish in the Dakotas and how quickly they grow in those pothole lakes is largely attributed to the freshwater shrimp. And they just like, sometimes you drill a hole out there and it just, as your water comes up, so too come the shrimp, you know, and the fish grow fast, and fat. And people wonder, could freshwater shrimp be a food source that we could include in Minnesota lakes to help that growth out? What's your response to that? So here, here's what I'd say. The, the biggest thing for the Dakotas is they have this kind of reservoir effect where they are going through these wet cycles that without great natural outlets, their lakes continue to grow and grow and grow and get bigger. And they've gone through some dry cycles where, again, they recede. But then immediately jump back into another wet cycle where they expand again. And as you flood out those terrestrial habitats, it's super productive, in particular for some of those uh, some of those freshwater shrimp species. Mm-hmm. And these are relatively new basins where, in the grand scheme of things, haven't been around for you know a handful of decades. Um, they're expanding, and there's not a complex fish community, and there's not this amount of time for these fish to really prey them down the, the 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 shrimp versus back here in minnesota a lot of these lakes have been around for a long long time they're depressions uh that have been left over from glaciation they've been here from you know long periods of time and there's this evolved ecosystem where um, we have a mixed fish community and they tend to prey down you know that's like a swimming steak you know a big old gamma shrimp and they're preyed down into low abundance you can find them out there but they're not just like super abundant because they haven't had all this terrestrial flooded area to expand in and, and, and really, you know, go hog wild. And because people ask all the time, I mean, you'll see it in private aquaculture. There's folks that will sell you hyalella or gamma shrimp to put in your private pond. And if it was just so easy as putting them in there, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. You know, if it worked that way, but it really, it just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned this, I don't know, a while ago now in this conversation, but People are fishing. They see the fish down there. They're lethargic. I can speak to this, actually. About four, five, six days ago, something like that, I pulled my house out on the ice, which, by the way, had more ice on the lake than at any point this winter. I yeah. used an extension to get through because I was drilling through my ice castle hole, so I'm you know, a little bit higher up. It was over two feet of ice out there. Um, you know, So just <laughs> people be aware. There's a lot of ice out there right now. Um, the fishing was not good. And I've had a lot of friends that have been out fishing where they're like, yeah, fishing was just not good lately. Think about it, people. The oxygen levels in these lakes right now are, even lakes that can handle a tough winter, the oxygen levels are most likely going to be low right now. Those fish are just like, Bleh. you know, they're not aggressive. They haven't been aggressive. It'll change really quick when water starts to run in. Oh, yeah. I mean, how quickly... Can those levels come back up? They can really come back up in a hurry. We can get a melt cycle. I know the one thaw that we had here in early March, uh, some stations went out and measured dissolved oxygen just to see if there'd be a bump. Some places it didn't have an impact. Maybe that melt water never reached the lake mm-hmm. based on watershed characteristics or how close that melt it was or how it's channelized, et cetera. Then there was other places that it bumped up two, three parts per million. Um, it's, it's really remarkable. We're going to see this occur 
you know, I was out on Saturday morning and turned my back to that nasty wind. And it's like, my gosh, we're two days away from the first day of spring. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, in a negative five wind chill. This is crazy. But yeah, there's a lot of ice, but we, we all see the same pattern, right? The snow starts to melt and then the outer edge of the lake recedes. And then in the middle, you see this honeycombing. And as that light, as that ice becomes spindly and honeycombing, it's actually happening as water is going down into the ice, weakening the structure and infiltrating down into the water. And that, that is occurring from, you know, as soon as we get that melt, any of that pooled water is doing that. It's, it's going down and it is bringing oxygen with it. So as soon as that melt starts up, whether it's the outer edges or it's creating that, those spindles, it's dropping down in there. I mean, you see those days that you get all that water pulled up and you start to see the little swirly, you know, whirlpools eroding away the ice, dropping it down. If you got a lot of water on top, that's introducing meltwater and and bringing up the oxygen level. So it will be happening very quickly. Uh, If somebody sees what they think is winter kill on their lake, do you recommend that they call their local DNR office and say, Hey, I think this lake is going to winter kill. I want to make sure we get on your list of, you know, to check it to, to restock or whatever needs to be done. Yeah, you know, especially, you know, most, a lot of folks are tracking ISO, right? Like uh, if you live on the lake or it's a favorite lake of yours, you're, you're going over and paying attention when it goes out. If you can, if you can check things out within a day or two of ice out and, and let us know, folks out there are the eyes and ears uh, in a lot of senses of, you know, we, we have a bit of an idea of where we want to check, but if someone can confirm they're seeing dead fish, yeah, that, that is helpful. Even, even if they have pictures to email us, it's, it's useful. Um, but after, I would say this, after, you know, maybe two, three, four days post ice out, we've usually heard from enough folks. And so then at that <laughs> yeah. point, it's like, well, we don't want to get blown away by tons of them. But uh, yeah, it is, it is good intentions and useful. And we certainly appreciate the citizen scientists out there. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the, another positive effect of this is your ability to boom your stocking program too right i mean you use yes. some of these shallow lakes to grow walleyes to grow other species of fish that you use to stock muskies or anything else so is this are you guys excited about this then we we, we absolutely are and i would say private aquaculture is if they are raising walleye fingerlings um just to have clean ponds where you have little competition and you usually see these great um responses both in survivorship and growth we're absolutely looking forward to that uh, certainly a point of tension has been uh, the bait industry in the state of Minnesota. Next question. Um, and I know that I was talking about, you know, jealously observing northern stations who had winter kill for the purposes of rearing walleyes. Well, if you are someone that raises golden shiners, you know, you may want to see that pond kill and then last for two, three years just to really let those adults build up. Not to say that they can't grow quickly and mature, just they like to see them survive for a couple of years. So on the flip side, you know, what's good for one isn't always good for the other. So mm-hmm. you can sometimes see, uh, see those folks, you know, take, uh, <laughs> take a shot if they lose a pond or something like that, or if they're overwintering broodstock or, or a private, uh, private growers. So there's always kind of a yin and a yang, but mm-hmm. you know, at least for fathead minnow production, you know, a clean pond, they'll, they'll really take off. And so this is actually yeah. a good thing for the bait industry then? Uh, I would say it's kind of, it, there's winners and losers, yeah. you know, it, it, you talk to the, you should talk to the growers and see what their thoughts are, but absolutely winter kill drives the bus for them just like it does for us for fish production. So they, some, some may say, well, I wish this pond hadn't gone because I had broodstock, uh, you know, game fish for my, for my private aquaculture rearing or a minnow 
grower minnow minnow dealer may have a pond that you know he was hoping to you know get a couple years out of that he didn't uh, or he may say yeah great i can re you know i have a private pond here i can reseed and you know go they crazy can, they literally take fatheads and release them back in so, sometimes i mean fatheads are pretty t- pretty hardy they'll usually have enough survivors but they may they may choose to boost it up a little and bit they're allowed to do that on their own on their own ponds that they're licensed to or that they they uh are you know they're entirely theirs you bet okay gotcha um well i think that pretty much wraps up our conversation here today about winter kill it's not the end of the world scott you have anything well, you'd like to add to i it? was just you know was I think we've we've covered a lot of ground with both aeration and shallow lake ecology, how winter kill functions and its effects on fish. The last thing I was going to touch on just briefly was uh, liberalized fishing. We, oh, yes. Dang it. I we, had that in my we, notes. Too. We do sometimes get that question. Mm-hmm. And just to be brief, I will say um, it's really it really is an antiquity, um, uh, something that folks used to do. It's not to say we don't have practitioners or folks that want to do it. But I'll give a perfectly ex- good example. Um, High Island Lake that I mentioned earlier was opened up for liberalized fishing. We were drawing it down, so we, we gave the permission. I talked to folks that went out there with a gill net, and they showed me pictures and video. Now, keep in mind, if you're going to go online and you're going to buy a commercial gill net, you're going to spend about $600. And then you're going to string it under the ice with boards, and you're going to work your butt off. You're going to cut holes, and you're going to string it along and try to get it deployed under the ice. And it is going to be a pain in the butt. And then to watch these guys on video pull it back up through the recovery hole. And what do they catch? A bunch of common carp and white suckers. <laughs> and maybe one walleye. I mean, you have to really love processing fish, smoking fish, eating fish to do that. Keep in mind, these common carp have very thick dorsal and anal spines. And they're like little little dump trucks down there they will tear up your net they're ripping it up yeah so you're out six hundred dollars you know if you want to do less work maury's fish will sell you (laughs) fish for a lot less effort and a lot less cost but that's not i mean i am not you know by all means if if people want to do that they can but here's the rub and we don't the, the policy has largely changed where as an organization we are not opening up lakes to liberalize fishing Part of it is what I talked about earlier, our predictive power on dissolved oxygen and then trying to use that to say this lake is going to kill. So we need to open it up. It's horrible. We can say some lake is going to go and it doesn't or. So do you not do that? at So all here's the practice has been this, and this is dated back. I don't know, probably almost 10 years. And even there's been, I can remember a lot of discussions about should we, or shouldn't we, when we sit down and come up with reasons we should and reasons we shouldn't, the reasons we shouldn't is a lot longer list than the reasons we should. One, Explain we don't... Explain that. What, we, why? What are those reasons? We don't have predictive power yeah. of if they're going to kill or not. But if they're to, swimming up into the hole, mm-hmm. that's to, pretty obvious. Well, though. but they're stressed. That doesn't mean they're dead. We've seen yeah. a lot of fish that are able to recover, and that is the key component there. We just got done saying we need some of these fish that are going to survive. Nature's all about survival of the fittest. If you're taking out those survivors you know, you could be potentially knocking one of the legs out of our recovery effort. Yeah. So leaving fish in the lake that might be able to recover. Then there's always the question of waste. So I'll tell you, there's never a waste that comes with this. Like That's sort of an, ant- that's a utilitarian way of thinking that everything is, you know, always for human consumption. And that's all that we do this for. Well, there is this ecological holistic idea of, Hey, nutrients are going to get recycled. 
you know, if we do see some kill, there's, that's, there's foraging opportunities for mammals and birds. Like mother nature responds to these things. She's been doing it for a lot longer than people have been around. So there's that component. You know, when you think about enforcement, enforcement has to make cases. We're talking conservation officers. They've got to make cases on over limits. Well, now somebody's watching our website and says, well, you, we, you, you opened up, you know, 50 lakes in, in this county for liberalized fishing. That's where all these fish are from. Mm-hmm. How are they going to make that case anymore? When you start going down the line of uh, the, the, the ice, you know, we, 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 when we open lakes up, we'd have, you know, we'd have fish that were left on the ice because people would be hydrating their fish and leaving them behind, leaving a mess. You know, you're talking about people going out late in the season typically. Um, you know, is there a safety component of that, you know, where they could be breaking through thin ice if they really get out there? I mean, our, our walleye season closes, we've got people taking fish outside of the normal, you know, walleye season, if it's walleye or pike or bass, it just opens a lot of cans of worms that, you know, guess what folks, if you want fish, you have opportunities in Minnesota. We have border waters that are open year round. You have panfish, you have catfish, you have Tulabi, I mean, there are fish that have a year-round season for harvest, so there's no shortage of harvest opportunities and angling opportunities. Uh, it just, in the long run, it seems to be a better practice for us to, to leave those. The one exception I will say is this. If, there, if the state of Minnesota and Minnesota DNR has a management activity, in other words, the, 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 uh, the organization is driving the bus and is the reason why there's going to be a fish kill, now all of a sudden there's there's reason this it's not a natural phenomenon. It's like some, a Pelican Lake. Like a Pelican Lake that was being drawn down, like a high island lake that's being drawn down, like Wakanda a couple of years ago in Candiohi County. Those lakes are being managed that way. So then we do offer the opportunity, hey, we're gonna open this up for liberalized fishing. Typically it's done during the you know, throughout that winter season up until the end of the walleye season, so we don't have some of that overlap issues. Well, I think these kind of conversations are helpful. I hope that people listening took a lot of information and I appreciate you coming in and being open to explaining things in detail. A lot of times the DNR gets quoted, you know, and once you start quoting people, as we know in the media world, there's misinformation. Like there's so much that needs to be said to, to really wrap your head around some topic, you know, in this case, winter kill. If, if there's something in print that gets uh, written out, from what you would say, Scott, it might be more that you wanted to say on both sides of it that aren't said, which is why I think having, you know, an, an hour long, like a podcast is really helpful to get the, all that information out there. Um, you did a good job explaining it. You know, your stuff, which is uh, hopefully people that fish in this state. Um, it's, it's comforting to know that managers care about the resource, understand it, live it just like I do. Like, like our listeners do and want what's best for it too. So we appreciate everything that you're doing out there. It's a bummer to see your favorite lake winter kill, but on the bright side, it might come back stronger than it's ever been before. And it comes back pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No context is important. And like you say, it's, it's, I'll, I'll always take the time to try to explain what I can and walk people through this and, you know, and, and I'll answer to the critics. There are, there are folks that, are disappointed with some of the things we say or do, but you know, I want to hear their side and i you know, respectfully, I hope to listen to my side as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, appreciate it again. And big shout out to Natalie. We think, we think that she'll be back next week, Brandon. I mean, possibly, hopefully, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> but I don't know if she's going for a world record or not, but good luck to her on, on her journey as well. 
And uh, with that, we'll be back next week with another episode, or maybe in two weeks. I don't know. Whenever Natalie comes back, we'll be back with another episode of Do North Outdoors. Outdoors.